Good morning. Good morning. It is good to see you all. Hey, Bill. Got announcements for you for more than just you, Bill. Um, this week on Friday, the 25th at 6.30, up here at the church is game night. And you can come whether you're a regular part of this church or you're a guest. Um, so, uh, so make plans to be a part of that if you'd like to. And uh, my other announcement is there is a week left to sign up for our Love Does event. Love Does um, is a weekend where uh, CBC gathers up and teams up to help people um, in the Conroe area. And we would love for you to be a part. You have about a week left to sign up. You can sign up online on the church website, um, going to events and finding the Love Does, Love Does event, or you can get there through the Church Center app. Either way will work. Um, and the first day is going to be helping individuals. The second day is helping some of our local mission partners, um, and we can use your help in both of those um, and if you're unable to make it that weekend but would still like to help out, let me encourage you to go see um, anybody on the Beyond Our Doors team. You can go see Mandy, who's standing there in the back, or Marissa next to her, um, or the Bittners, um, Anthony um, with his hand up there, his, his lovely wife. And if you can't find them, um, come and get me, and I'll help you find them. Um, but please, uh, please consider signing up to help. Also, if you um, would like to be a part of day three, which is, a, which is a celebration up here at the church, we still need you to sign up and just let us know that you'll be at the celebration. That way they can plan for food. Um, so please do that. That's all I have for announcements. Would you guys stand up with us and we'll get started with worship.
thank you for the life that we find in, in you. We thank you that we are able to see um, through the sacrifice of your son, um, your beauty. We thank you that we can look around in the world that we live in and the people that we worship with and find your beauty. 
Father, we ask that you would teach us today. We ask that you would draw us close to you. Make us more like Jesus, we pray in his name. Amen. You guys can have a seat. And if you are one of our kiddos, K through 5, you can be dismissed to Sunshine Kids Club. If you're one of our guests, please feel free to take your kiddo and get them checked in. And then you can come back and join us. Who defines when a summit is reached, when a journey is complete, when the ascent has been finished? Now, common sense tells us that uh, when you reach the top, you're done. You've completed the journey. You have finished the ascent. You have reached the top. But there is this question being raised in the mountaineering community now as they begin to research what is a true summit and how many people have reached that true summit. Uh, they have a record of 44 people, one American, around the world that have climbed all of the um, 26,000 foot summits around the world. And out of these 44, there is one American, and they are asking the question, who is reaching the true summit here in the mountaineering community? Ed Visters uh, thinks he has uh, an answer to that question, and it comes from his own story. Uh, he is one, he's the American. He's the one, one of the 44 that has achieved this climbing of the 26,000-foot peaks. And he tells a story that back in 1993, he was climbing, and I'm going to try to say this right, Ship Shap Pangma, the uh, 14th highest mountain in the world. And he was climbing that alone, without oxygen, without any aids, and he had reached what was called the Central Summit. And that's where he took his selfie, and that's where most people called, you're done. That's the summit. He looked ahead, and he saw this true summit that was just a few feet higher in elevation, but you had to cross this 300-foot spine, this ridge that dropped off on both sides. And he said, that's too dangerous. I'm not going to do that. I'm calling it quits. I'm heading back. This is, this is good enough for me. And that's where everybody else had gone to. But it stuck with him. He said, I'm the kind of guy that if the last nail is not in the deck, that deck's not finished. And so eight years later, 2001, he heads back to the mountain and he climbs it and he looks at that spine and he gets on it because it's just literally a ridge that he has to sit on with a leg hanging off on each side, severe drops. And he just scoots across, touches the top of the summit, scoots back to relative safety and says, I made the true summit. So now in the mountaineering community, they're trying to decide how many people actually have climbed these mountains 
And, and how many people have not reached true summits because many of them evidently have that type of ridge. This is actually not Shipshap Pengma. This is Mark Horrell at a different mountain, but he's showing where he stopped and what he called the summit. He's facing the camera, but his buddy said, no, I've got to go to the top. So the Sherpa is uh, belaying him and, and taking care of him. But here's what two climbers and, and researchers and, and authors in that community said. David Roberts says this, the summit does matter. Why does it matter? Because it's the whole point of mountaineering. It's the goal that defines an ascent. An Australian explorer, Damien Gildia, said this, people are stopping short because it's too hard. And I say, that's not really a good excuse for a climber. I want to look at our spiritual ascent today in our faith journey. And I want to ask this question to start with, just to get us thinking, because we might be able to identify with this. Can you imagine Jesus saying to the Father that getting to Jerusalem is good enough? That's good enough. And talking to the Father and just saying, you know, instead of going to the cross, I've got a couple of ideas that I think will wrap this up nicely. Let's go, I'll go to the Sanhedrin, and I'll set up a debate, and I will shame these guys so bad. I will humiliate them with my biblical knowledge and their lack of it and the burdens they put on everybody that nobody will ever listen to them again. And we'll be done with their legalism, putting heavy burdens on, drawing people away from, from God. And then I'll go to Rome. And I'll talk to the Senate, and I'll do some sensational miracles, and I'll get their attention and just say, you guys lay off of Israel. Take care of that. Because I have done tons of miracles. I've even done miracles that aren't recorded in the Gospels here. And I've raised the dead. And I've corrected a lot of bad biblical understanding and poor theology. So I think that the work is done here. I think that we can just slide in and accomplish what you would like to long-term, Father, if we did it that way. Can you imagine that? No. Jesus did not have that conversation, and Jesus would have never had that conversation because he had a fierce determination to do the will of the Father. He had a strong intention that was deeply resolved within him to obey the Father and to complete the plan of redemption that the Father had set out before him. We could probably identify more with that imaginary conversation with the Father than Jesus. He never had that conversation, but we often converse ourselves with ourselves that way. Because the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And so we run into opposition, whether it's spiritual warfare, or we're tired, or we have busy schedules. And we begin to fade away in our determination to obey the Father. In fact, our determination is just to get stabilized sometimes, right? To get comfortable, to get our projects done, to complete our tasks, to do what's required of us. And so this idea of completing what the Father has for us and accomplishing His will often gets disregarded and sometimes just ignored completely. But we often inform Jesus that we want to follow Him. We just inform Him how we want to follow Him. 
So today we want to look at the question, how can we follow Jesus with a fierce determination? Because our goal is to become like him, right? I mean, that's what the Holy Spirit is doing in us as we cooperate with him, as we obey him, as we live according to his word, as we spend time in prayer. He's changing us from the inside out to become more like Jesus. And if that is our goal, then how can we be like Jesus with a fierce determination? Well, we're in a sermon series in which we are trying to understand Jesus better. We want to know him in greater ways and understand him so that we might love him more deeply and so that we might follow him more completely. That's our desire. And so if we're going to find out how to have a fierce determination like Jesus, we want to look at his fierce determination in accomplishing the Father's will. And we're going to do that by turning to Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9, the last little paragraph or one of the last little paragraphs in the Gospel of Luke chapter 9. And what we'll see is that Jesus possesses a fierce determination to obey the Father. Jesus is determined to obey the Father's will. Jesus possesses a fierce determination to obey the Father. This paragraph is typical of the opposition faced by Jesus in fulfilling his obedience to the Father. And so even just this little paragraph has themes of opposition and judgment and rejection and mission. It ends by Jesus restating his mission in the midst of rejection and even misunderstanding by the disciples. In Luke's gospel, this passage is a, a turning point. So if you think about Luke's gospel, you really have about three years uh, in Luke chapter 9, or Luke chapter, chapters 1 through 950. And then three years of public ministry of Jesus. And then 951 through 19, you basically have a six-month journey to Jerusalem that ends with the Passion Week. And then, of course, in Luke 24, we have a chapter after the resurrection. But that's kind of how the book lays out. And so this is a turning point. This is where Jesus is making a decision after three years of public ministry to leave Galilee and head for Jerusalem. And times are very tense. You know that there's been a lot of opposition to him. It's been voiced and verbal, and they have sent assassin squads to try and catch him and trap him and destroy him and kill him. And it hasn't happened yet. But the disciples are aware of all this, and his followers are aware. And because of that, they're very nervous and scared about going to Jerusalem for the Passover feast. But that's where we find Jesus here in Luke chapter 9, verse 51. He's determined with a deep resolve, and this is what we read in 951. When the days were approaching for his ascension, he was determined to go to Jerusalem. He was determined. That word is, is literally a, a few words. It's set his face to go to Jerusalem. You could even say set his face like flint. He was deeply resolved that this is what he was going to do. He was going to go to Jerusalem because that's where the father wanted him to go. That was going to complete his ministry here on earth before the ascension. He was determined to complete the task. And the word ascension here literally means to be received up. I find that very interesting that he didn't just say going to Jerusalem or going to the cross. He says the ascension. And what that does is it wraps up the rest of Jesus' ministry, his death 
and resurrection in Jerusalem and then his ascension a little while later. So this is him completing his plan. This is him stating what God wants him to do up until his ascension. Luke's recording that for us. He has determined that he's going to complete what the Father has called him to do. It refers to a word that goes back all the way in, in earlier in nine, chapter 9, verse 22, verse 31, talking about his passion prediction. And all of this is a divine fulfillment of God's plan. In fact, in the prediction, he says, I must go to Jerusalem. I must suffer. I must be killed, die, and rise again. It's a divine necessity. This is the Father's plan for him. And so it's not going to be a tragedy. It's not going to be a mistake. He's going to choose to lay down his life in obedience to the Father. There's another word here in this redemptive plan. It's the word approaching. The days were approaching, and, and that's the word, our word, fulfillment. And so again, we see God's redemptive plan, God's sovereignty coming together here. And Jesus is cooperating by his obedience to the Father. He is determined to do what the Father has called to him. Opposition is intense. He's going to be rejected. He's going to be killed. And he goes for our sake. This is our Jesus. 9.51, he's determined. He has set his face like flint. And then we read in verses 52 and 53 about the opposition. And in the midst of the opposition, Jesus is going to challenge the cultural norms. And he's still going to try to reach people that actually are going to reject him. We read this in verses 52 and 53. And he sent messengers on ahead of him. And they went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make arrangements for him. But they did not receive him because he was traveling toward Jerusalem. They didn't receive him because of racial and religious hostilities between the Samaritans and the Jews. The Jews didn't like the Samaritans any more than the Samaritans didn't like the Jews. The Jews looked at the Samaritans as a mixed race. They were part Israelite. They were part non-Israelite. They compromised the faith. They only believed in the books of the law. They didn't accept the historical books or the prophets, the wisdom literature. So the Jews looked down on them. They worshiped at Mount Gerizim. The Samaritans looked down on the Jews, and you've heard the stories before, that often if, if a Jew was traveling from Galilee up north, uh, down south to Jerusalem, then they would cross the Jordan River and, and go along on the other side of the Jordan until they came to Jericho. And then they would come up to Jerusalem because they didn't want to go through Samaria. They hated the land that much. Jesus is going to go to Jerusalem. He's going to take his little posse, and they're going to go right through Samaria. They look for a place to stay, and the Samaritans will not have them. They reject them. He stays on mission. He's still trying to reach them. He's ready to offer them salvation. But the disciples come up with a fantastic idea at this point. They're like, hey, let's just pulverize this community. Let's call down fire from heaven. So this is what they say in verse 40, 54. When his disciples, James and John, of course, sons of thunder, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? <laughs> They're like, you know, we've got this newfound authority. 
We've just seen Elijah in the transfiguration. That reminded us of him calling down fire from heaven. And so they're like, hey, we're up to speed with you, Lord. We could do something here that would be biblical, actually. And, and we could just call down fire from heaven. They want to bring down judgment because they recognize that this community has rejected Jesus. Well, Jesus is not going to let that happen. He's in front. He's leading his disciples. And so he turns, and we read in verses 55 and 56. He turned and rebuked them and said, You do not know what kind of spirit you are of. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they went on to another village. What he's doing is reminding them that this is not the time for judgment. That day will come. But this is the time for offering the kingdom. And what he's doing here is he's tying it back into Luke chapter 4. If you recall your studies in, in Luke, Luke chapter 4, he starts his public ministry there in the synagogue. And he takes down the scroll of Isaiah. And he opens it to what we would call Isaiah chapter 61. And he reads verse 1 and the first half of verse 2. And he says, in essence, this is my time to come and to release the prisoners, to give sight to the blind, to proclaim grace. That's what I'm here to do. Interestingly enough, the second part of verse 2 and verse 3 speak about the second advent, a time of judgment. He stops with the first advent and the giving of grace. And so he's here to offer grace, and he's letting the disciples, even though we're in an extremely stressful time, even though we're facing opposition and we've just been rejected, we're still here to save. We serve a God that's patient and persevering that all might come to him. And for this moment, we're going to offer grace. People will be held responsible for their response to it, and there will be a time of judgment. But this is not the time, says Jesus. Now is the time for grace. These verses clarify Jesus' desire to stay on mission. And he wants to see the same determination to obey the Father in our own lives that he possessed, right? We're his followers. We want to come to become like him. We've set our wills to, to follow him. But how often do we have things we want to accomplish first? Personal dreams we want to achieve. In fact, earlier in chapter 9, Jesus had dealt with those who said, I want to follow you, but I've got to go do this first. I've got to take care of the plow. I've got to bury my father. I've got to do all these things. And so often that is our response to the Lord. We want to be favorable. We want to be gracious. We want to be accepting of his authority in our lives. But too often we say, but first, Lord. Can you think of anything in your life that's like that? I can think of tons of things. There are things I would like to study. There are things I would like to write. There are things I, places I would like to go and people I would like to visit. It's a constant battle in my life to surrender to his authority and not to say, but first, Lord, but to follow him. Jesus is showing the way of fierce determination that he modeled for us. He possesses a, a fierce determination to obey the Father. 
and it doesn't take place in a vacuum. So what I'd like to do now is, is to look at some of the opposition that he faced and confronted him from every angle that as he went through his earthly ministry. And what we see is that Jesus possessed a fierce determination in the midst of hostile opposition. This didn't take place in a vacuum. This took place in the midst of hostile opposition. The gospel narratives are full of that. He left the glory of heaven to come to earth, to identify with us, to redeem mankind, to reveal the Father to us. And he did that knowing full well that he was coming into a battle zone, a war zone where he would be opposed and rejected and killed. This is what Jesus did for us. He was not just a kind, wandering storyteller. He wasn't a Mr. Rogers looking for a good neighborhood or trying to create one. He was a warrior coming into a battle zone to do the will of the Father. His mentality was one of a fierce determination to obey the Father. And I like, uh, I was pointed in this, uh, this terminology by John Eldridge, one of his books, that Jesus was alternately, 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 <laughs> both the hunted and the hunter. The hunted and the hunter. So let's look at that just quickly. Remind you of, of some of what you already know about his ministry. His story started in genocide. He's born. The wise men come from a different land, and they're looking for him, and they say to King Herod and his people, you know, where is this king that's been born in Israel? And Herod's like, what? And so what does he do? He, he has all the, the boys around Bethlehem, two years old and younger, killed. An angel of the Lord appears to Joseph and sends them, Joseph, Mary, and Jesus, to Egypt. So he's born with strong opposition. And the Lord doesn't remove Herod. He doesn't remove that edict. What he does is he sends them to Egypt, and then he calls them back when that Herod dies. His story started in the context of genocide. At the start of his public ministry, you know that the Holy Spirit took him out into the wilderness and he was tempted by Satan. Three times he was tempted to go away from God's will, to do things his way, and actually to take some shortcuts to the kingdom. And three times he replied with God's word and said, here's the will of the Father, Satan. Here's what I'm going to do. You remember that opposition. Of course, Satan's opposition continued all the way through. Satan was behind a lot of the other things. Some of it was great storms in nature. Some of it was the demons that Jesus would go to and confront and cast out. Satan was opposed to him. Jesus' family, early on in Mark chapter 3, we have a situation where uh, Jesus is being opposed by the city leaders there and his family, his mother and his brothers come and they're waiting outside for him. They want to take him home because they're a little concerned about some of the things he's saying now and this uh, Messiah complex that he has. And, and so they're a little concerned. They're going to take care of him and um, they misunderstand him. 
until later. The religious leaders and the political leaders of the land despised Jesus. They envied his popularity. And so one Sabbath in, in Mark chapter 3, he heals the withered hand of a man. And of course, the Pharisees and the scribes and all the religious leaders have their investigators out for the Sanhedrin following Jesus. They're looking for ways to trap him. They want to catch him doing wrong so that they can have easy excuses to kill him. But their purpose is to destroy him. So he does this and the leader of the synagogue says, hey, we've got six days a week where you can do all the work you want to. You can heal anybody you want to, but this is wrong. And Jesus is deeply grieved. He's angered because he's here to bring wholeness and healing, to offer salvation. And so he heals the, the withered man's hand. And then something very unique happens, but it intensifies all the opposition that is going on in the land that Jesus will face because now the political leaders and the religious leaders join forces, the Pharisees and the Herodians. This is what we read in Mark chapter 3. The Pharisees went out and immediately began conspiring with the Herodians against Jesus as to how they might destroy him. Jesus was indeed the hunted as he stayed on mission for the, for the Father. And his enemies joined force with their enemies to go after him. The Herodians and the Pharisees hated each other. But they had a common enemy in Jesus. Even his disciples inadvertently opposed Jesus. Do you remember when, when Jesus asked, who does man say that I am? And they said, Elijah, or John the Baptist. And, and then he said, well, who do you say that I am? And, and the Lord gave Peter the idea that you are the Messiah, you are the Christ. And he gives the first passion prediction. What's going to happen when he goes to Jerusalem? His death, his resurrection, all the rejection, all the suffering. And Peter says, no, 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 you've got it all wrong. In fact, the term is he rebuked Jesus. And Jesus rebukes Peter and he says, get you behind me, Satan. Because Peter wants to do man's way. He wants to do it with man's agenda, not God's agenda. And so he has to call out his own disciple, Peter, to get across to the disciples that this is God's plan. It is a divine necessity. Even his disciples inadvertently opposed him and his mission before they understood it. Jesus was the hunted, but he also became the hunter. He stood against the political leaders. The next Herod experienced the wrath of Jesus Christ. We read in, in Luke 13 about the story about the uh, Pharisees coming to him, a couple of honest Pharisees, and we don't know if it was Nicodemus or Joseph of Arimathea, but they come, and they say, hey, Herod wants to kill you, stay out of Jerusalem. And that's actually on this journey that he is on, on his way to Jerusalem. So they are coming to him in all fairness, stay away, just want to warn you. And, and Jesus looks at him and says, hey, you know, you tell that old fox, I'm coming. I'm coming to Jerusalem. I'll be there for the whole mission. Jesus is not concerned with giving in to mankind. Satan constantly felt the sting of Jesus' power and authority. Jesus healed those in bondage to Satan. He cast out demons. He revealed authority over nature. And even when Satan thought he had victory at the cross, Jesus crushed and defeated him. 
through his death and resurrection. The religious leaders also experienced Jesus' wrath. Luke 13, again, more than once, they tried to turn the crowds on him. But Jesus also went after them. He healed a woman on the Sabbath, a woman who had a, a bad back for 18 years. But again, it took place in the synagogue on the Sabbath. And so again, the Pharisees are upset, but this time Jesus goes after them. And, and he's, we read this in Luke's words in, in verse 17. As he said this, talking to them, all his opponents were being humiliated. And the entire crowd was rejoicing over, over all the glorious things being done. By Jesus. Jesus was the hunted, but he was also the hunter because he had a fierce determination to accomplish God's will, to do what the Father had asked him to do, to live in obedience to the Father. Jesus faced severe opposition, but his determination was to glorify God. So how did he do it? How did he cope? How did he get his where did he get his strength? How did he overcome the temptation to overcome, to, to not take shortcuts, or just to quit. Well, we find his secret in his prayer life. And so we're going to look at that in this last section. Jesus achieved a fierce determination in the Father's strength. What he did was he tuned his heart to the Father's. He stayed in close communion with the Father. That way he knew what the Father wanted. That way he was guided by the Father. And that way he was strengthened and sustained by the Father. And so when we talk about having devotions, spending time in God's Word, reading God's Word, spending time in prayer, we're not just saying, hey, that's a, something to check off the list that all good Christians do. No, this is something that's powerful and living and dynamic where God is pouring into your life, where Jesus is pouring into your life reminding you of his calling on your life and letting you know how he wants you to live, but also sustaining you and strengthening you and changing your heart to look at people with compassion and love and transforming and renewing your mind to not only look at the world as he does, but to appreciate what the Father wants. So we're going to take a look at Jesus' secret prayer life. I think that's where he got his resolute spirit. That's how he could set his face like flint. He set a pattern for us to follow by staying on mission with a fierce determination. I think he also showed, gave us a pattern to follow in how to stay determined in our will. And that's by staying determined to be in tune with the Father. Because we live, we live determined lives, but as I said earlier, most of our determination is to get comfortable or to take care of things that are going on so that we can eventually serve the Lord well. The truth is, our mission must be carried on in great opposition. Whether it's spiritual warfare, Satan just simply trying to distract us from devotion to Christ or causing us to be disobedient or disregard God's calling whether it's busy schedules or personal fears or anxieties. We want to be a people that are determined to follow him because we want to become like him. And in Luke's gospel in chapter 6, verse 40, we read this. These are the words of Jesus. A pupil is not above his teacher, but everyone after he has been fully trained will be like his teacher. That's the discipleship process right there. We're being discipled to Jesus. 
And the more time that we spend to him, the more we begin to understand his thoughts and his ways. The more time that we spend with him, the more we are trained and equipped by him. And the more time that we spend with him and are trained and equipped by him, the more we become like him. That's the process of discipleship. And this is how Jesus worded it in Luke chapter 6. We're to follow Jesus Christ wherever, whenever, forever. And if Jesus faced opposition, we're going to face opposition. But we want to follow him in obedience. So following Jesus requires great determination. Jesus spent time alone with the Father in prayer. And he remained determined to fulfill the mission given to him. And I believe that strong resolve came from his prayer. So I want to look over in the Gospel of Mark. And in the Gospel of Mark, we see three times Mark selectively reveals the prayer life of Jesus. Only three times. But each time, once at the beginning of his ministry, once kind of in the middle, and then once at the very end, the night before he went to the cross, each time Jesus is facing tremendous temptation. There is incredible opposition to staying on plan with the Father. Each time he is tempted to either take a shortcut or to do things differently or just to quit altogether. And what that does is it shows us that in prayer he found the strength to stay on task to stay on mission, to keep loving the Father enough to do his will. So we're going to look at three just quickly. The first one takes place in Mark 1, 35. Jesus has been, it's, a, it's that great passage in chapter 1 of Mark, where it's basically a day in the life of Jesus. It starts early in the morning, goes through till about 4 a.m. the next morning. And it's just been a day of teaching with authority and healing and casting out demons and all kinds of stuff going on. And then... Four in the morning, he gets up early before dawn, and we read this in Mark 1.35. In the early morning, while it is still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went away to a secluded place and was praying there, was praying there. Jesus had been speaking and healing and teaching and casting out demons in Capernaum. The kingdom was on the move, and people were excited. They could sense something going on. And Jesus' popularity was going off the charts. Everybody wanted to have a piece of him. In fact, more than once in chapter 1, it says the whole village gathered at the door. Everyone wanted to see him. That's how it's reported to us in, in Mark chapter 1. And, and when we think about it, the disciples come for him after verse 35 there, and they say, hey, they finally find him. They say, everyone is looking for you. And the implication is, in the midst of all that popularity, let's ride this wave. Let's stay here. Everybody loves you. You've got a message. Let's bring it together. It's popular. Let's stay here. Now, that would be the fleshly way of doing it, right? That's how we would design things. But Jesus says, you know, we need to get out of here. We need to continue this same ministry in other places. The word has gotten out, yes. He has the temptation to ride the wave of popularity and take a shortcut to becoming king. He will not do it. And so what does he do after an exhausting day, a long day of ministry? He goes, gets up around four in the morning, goes out and spends time in prayer because he wants to tune his heart with that of the father's. The second time that we find Jesus praying in the gospel of Mark is right after the feeding of the 5,000. 
and you know that in the 5,000, the way they counted with families and all that, there's probably 20,000 people there. And that's the only miracle that's uh, given to us in each one of the four Gospels. And when it's given to us in John, John reports that the people were so excited. There was this messianic enthusiasm. They recognized him as the Messiah. They wanted to make him king right then. They were ready to get him. And Jesus says to his disciples, we got to get out of here. You get in the boat and cross the lake. I'm going up to the mountain to pray. So this is the second time that Jesus prays. And we read this in Mark 6, verses 45 and 46. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he himself was sending the crowd away. After bidding them farewell, he left for the mountain to pray. He could have taken the people's route to ruling. He could have been the king that they wanted him to be. But what they wanted was not what the father wanted. And so he went back to the father to realign himself, to listen to the father, to talk to the father, and tell him about his own fears and anxieties and desires, and to just enjoy the fellowship with the father. The third time, it's probably the best known time in the Gospel of Mark that we find Jesus praying, and that's in the Garden of Gethsemane. It's the night before he goes to the cross, and you know, he takes the disciples out to the garden, and he takes Peter, James, and John with him a little bit further. And he is praying. It's very intense. We're told that he's sweating drops of blood. Here he is at the climax, the focal point of the plan of redemption the supreme manifestation of God's love for mankind. And he's anxious about it. He's scared. He says to the Father, if you've got another way of doing this, let's do it. But then he says, with that same resolute will, not my will, but your will, be done. He has that same fierce determination to stay on task in the midst of great temptation to quit, to go a different route, to disappear, or to call down armies of angels from heaven and right the ship his way. Jesus doesn't do that. He goes to prayer. He plainly asks the Father to do his will and to give him the strength to be able to accomplish what the Father wants him to. And so he goes through the arrest in the garden, and he goes through all the unjust trials. He goes through the flogging, the beating, the suffering, being attached to a cross with thick nails. And he hangs there, laying down his life for you and me. He dies, he's buried, and he rises again victoriously over sin and death to offer eternal life to all who simply believe in him as God the Son, that he did die for your sins on the cross in your place, was buried and rose again. That's a simple gospel. But it wasn't simple the way Jesus lived it. He paid a price because he had a fierce determination out of his love for you and me and his love for the Father to fulfill his will to accomplish his plan. Three times Jesus faced temptation to do things differently than the Father had asked him, just like he did in the wilderness. 
And each time he went to prayer with the Father. And the Father sustained him and strengthened him and guided him. We would do well to seek the Father with the same determination and prayer that Jesus did so that we might sustain a long obedience in the right direction, so that we might fulfill the plan of the Father and the mission that he's given us, clear in Scripture, and some of us unique gifts and personalities and temperaments and ways to serve. We don't want to be people that try to talk him over out of it. We don't want to people, be a people that just settle for a central summit. We want to go to the true summit, becoming like Jesus. And it takes determination, a fierce determination. And your prayer life with the Father will sustain that. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for this scripture. We thank you for your model, your pattern of staying on mission despite tremendous opposition and barriers. We thank you for your obedience to the Father. And we thank you, Lord, that you make that possible in our lives. You forgave us our sins when we trusted you. You gave us the free gift of eternal life, and you live in us by faith. And we thank you that all of this is possible because of you. And we pray that you would give us a great determination to spend time in prayer as a time of communion with you and being aligned with your desires and your wills for our life and knowing your word. And we thank you for letting us see this side of you this morning. In Christ's name, amen. Let's stand together.
Have a great week.